You can be turning in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Matthew 21. Last week you looked at verses 12 through 17 about the cleansing of the temple, which is a a well-known story, as Chris pointed out, even among unbelievers, it's a well-known story. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go online and watch that again, because um, as we we see, as Matthew often does, he groups these stories together. And so what we're going to talk about today is just a, a direct continuation of last week, which again is why we preach verse by verse so that we get the big picture of what's going on. So this morning... In Matthew 21, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Father, this morning we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, where we ask that you would speak to us, to all of us, in the way that we need most. Lord, you know the needs of every heart in the room this morning, of everyone that's watching at home this morning, and I do not. And so, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would work, that you would receive the glory for everything that's said and done this morning, that you would be lifted up and magnified today, Lord, and we ask that you would give us wisdom from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We see as we get to this passage, as Jesus has been going along, starting in chapter 21 with the triumphal entry, um, Jesus is, is no longer interested in keeping things quiet anymore. Uh, we saw early in his ministry he performed a lot of public minis- uh, miracles, and then in uh, a few chapters ago we saw how he was withdrawing more, even going to Gentile areas where he was less known, constantly telling people when he's doing miracles, don't tell anybody about this, it's, it's not the right time, kind of keeping things under wraps. And then we see in the beginning with, of chapter 21 this triumphal entry where, um, as Pastor Chris pointed out, probably even a couple million of people, uh, a couple million people are in Jerusalem for Passover, and there's this grand entry of Jesus with people shouting, even children in the temple proclaiming that he's the son of David. Uh, there's no hiding anymore, and so he's coming into Jerusalem, and we see basically from this point on all the way up until the cross. Spoiler at the end, uh, it's there. We're going to get there. But we see these two, uh, this, this time period here of uh, basically Jesus is, is uh, not holding anything back. And so he's being very blunt. He's pronouncing judgment on Israel and specifically the leadership of Israel. And we saw this last week uh, with the cleansing of the temple where he came in and uh, basically accused them of taking advantage of the people of God uh, and practicing this false religion. And then now we come to this fig tree 
And so the title of the message this morning is The Crisis of Cosmetic Christianity. The Crisis of Cosmetic Christianity. We live in a day in 2021 with a lot of fake Christianity. We all know it. And in some circles, particularly in the ones that that our church is in, it's easy for us to point the fingers at others. We can point to the TV preachers, we can point to the megachurch preachers, we can point to all of them and say that a lot of that is fake. But we are not exempt or immune from being fake ourselves, just as Israel could look and accuse all the Gentile nations of disobeying the law of God and worshiping idols and doing these kind of things, and yet when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's not dealing with the Gentiles here. He's dealing with his people. We live in an age of what's called uh, deconstruction or exvangelicalism. If you look it up online, we have one of John Piper's sons who is now a very vocal exvangelical. We have people like Joshua Harris. We have uh, many pastors, uh, some within our own circles, who have disqualified themselves from the ministry or have become apostate altogether and deny Christ now with their lives. Uh, we have men in recent days like Ravi Zacharias who carried on a long Christian ministry and died, and when his sins were found out, they seem to indicate that he may, may never have been in Christ at all based on his behaviors. This is the age that we live in. Some, some fake Christianity is easy to spot. Some of it is more difficult to spot. One of the things that I find interesting growing up uh, as a Southern Baptist my whole life is that uh, one of the things that we see is we have a lot of people in Southern Baptist churches who are actually converted under the evangelism of unbelievers. So we train unbelievers in the church who are not truly Christians in methods of sharing the gospel with the world. They go out and share a true gospel message of salvation, and unbelievers are converted by unbelievers, by their own preaching. Uh, I think that's a unique thing in history. That's not something that has happened a lot historically, but we live in a day where many people came to Christ because someone led them to the Lord, and that person ends up falling away and demonstrating that they were never in Christ at all. Uh, there may be some of you sitting in the room today that you think about somebody who discipled you uh, as a new believer or even led you to Christ, and that person is not walking with the Lord now. They've abandoned Christ. I think that's a unique thing in history. And so I call this cosmetic Christianity. It has the appearance. It's like makeup that you put on. It has the appearance of true Christianity, of true faith, of true religion, and yet there's nothing there. And that's what our text is looking at this morning. So there's three things that I want us to see about how Jesus deals with this problem. Because we recognize that this is a parable. It's not really about the tree. The tree is representative of something else. And so there's three things. If you're taking notes, uh, we're, we're going to get a little deep this morning. I hope uh, you'll appreciate that. But there's some important things that we can see in this text that I want us to see. The first thing that I want us to see in verse 18 is his divine demarcation. His divine demarcation. Verse 18, now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Now this is talking about Jesus here. And it's interesting that Matthew notes 
that he's hungry. This is an unnecessary verse uh, for the purpose of the fig tree. Matthew could have very easily just spoken about the fig tree, that there was a fig tree, Jesus wanted fruit from it, there wasn't fruit, and so Jesus cursed it. That's the end of the story. And yet Matthew feels like it's important to include here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the reason why Jesus was looking at this tree is because he was hungry. Now, why is this important? This is important because it tells us something about Jesus that we may forget, and that is that Jesus was a human man. Jesus has, right now, a human body that is the same as our human bodies. And I want, to, I want to take just a second and explain some of the theology of that, because this is not something that most of us have heard in Sunday school or growing up. Um, I'm going to use a big word here. It's called the hypostatic union. And what does the hypostatic union mean? The hypostatic union means that Jesus actually has two natures. Jesus has a divine nature, and Jesus has a human nature. And we are not like him in that way. There is actually only one who has a, both a fully human nature and a fully divine nature, and that is Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, he is the only one. And so while we may have spirits, our nature is a human nature. We do not have a divine nature. We are not God. We are not like God. Uh, our, both our spirits and our bodies are created. And yet what we see the Bible teaching about Jesus is, is that in Jesus' divine nature, as what John calls the Word in John chapter 1, has always existed. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He is God. That has never changed. And so we know that the person of Jesus Christ in his divine nature has always existed from the beginning, that he is a part of the Godhead, that there is only one God who exists in three persons, and that the Son is one of those persons. However, we also know that there was a time in history where Jesus took on a human nature, when he was born, he was incarnated, which means put into flesh. And so a human nature was fashioned for him, as uh, the Gospels say, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit who made a body for the Son to be born into. So this eternal God was born into a body which, is, which now lives forever. We know that. The Scripture says that he's at the right hand of the Father even right, right now this morning. But yet that human nature has a beginning when his divine nature doesn't. How can those things be together? It's what we call a hypostatic union, which means his divine nature and his human nature are unified together in one person. He's not two persons. He's only one person. And that those natures do not change. They don't mix together. They don't absorb into each other. One of the ways uh, that's I've found easier to understand this is, for instance, when we see Jesus' miracles. You see Jesus doing things in his humanity, for instance, asking questions as though maybe he's not aware of something. Does that mean that he's less God? No, it means that he has a human nature and that his human brain is a human brain like our brains. There are many things that our brains and our bodies cannot do. And so part of what the scripture means when it says that he humbled himself and came as a man is that he assumed human limitations in order to come and be with us. And that, that does not take away from his divinity or his power or his godhood because his divine nature is completely intact. It's completely unchanged by him becoming a human man. And so those things do not mix. And one of the easiest ways to understand this is Jesus' miracles, I believe. And, and the reason why is this. 
Sometimes it's easy for us to think in our culture that when Jesus performed a miracle, for instance, healing someone, that that was the human nature of Jesus tapping into the divine power from his divine nature in order to heal that person. But what we see in the scripture is that those natures do not mix, mix together. So where did he get the power from in order to heal that person if he wasn't tapping into his divine nature? He received that power from the Holy Spirit the same way that we do. So as a human man, he, he set the example for us of when we pray, Jesus prayed like we pray. Uh, he wasn't just doing that as a show. He was doing that because in his humanity, he needed that connection with his Father the same way that we do. And so Jesus leads this, for example, with us. Now, if you want to talk about that more, I'm happy to do that. We could do a whole lot more on that. But that's just one little thing that we see in this text is the humanity of Jesus. The second thing that we see is the hunger of Jesus. And I'll just point out, I was going to read it before, but I'm going to spare you from that today. If you want to know more about how that works, you can read the Chalcedonian Creed from 451, where they kind of laid all that out, and it gets very specific. And I think if I read it right now, it would probably not uh, ease your confusion. So um, I can point you to that uh, after the message today, if that's something you're interested in. But we see his humanity here. The second thing is we see his hunger. And so Jesus got hungry just like we did. He had a human body. He had to sleep. He had to eat. Uh, He grew. Right When he was born as a baby, he had the mind of a baby because he was in a human body. And so as he grew, the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature with men, which means he didn't just grow physically, but his, his human ability to even understand things grew also. And so while he was in the manger when he was born, even though the, world said, or the Scripture says he was holding the entire world together, in his human nature, he was a real baby, just like, just like we were all real babies. So Jesus comes up to this tree, and his expectation of satisfying fruit from the tree foreshadows his expectation of a satisfying harvest when he returns. And so who is the tree in this story? The tree in this story is Israel. But there, there is another tree, or, or I should say we are also a part of that tree, of being the people of God, and there is going to come a day where he's going to return and looking at the tree of of his church, universal, of this church, Barbaraville, and of you, and he's going to be looking for fruit in the same way. He's coming with a hunger, and he expects to be satisfied with that hunger. Augustine said it this way. He said, it is not on an insensible tree that he has inflicted punishment. Rather, he has made you fear, whoever you are who considers this matter, that you should not fail Christ when he is hungry, and that you might hope to be in the coming season of fruit than to be in the preparatory season of leaves. This is what we hope when Jesus returns, right? That we have something to show him of, you saved me, you redeemed me, you gave me a command to preach the gospel, here's what I've done with it. I have something to show for what you've done for me, right? And we know that we're not saved based on that, thank God, because none of us can produce enough fruit to actually earn God's forgiveness. But out of love for him, uh, my kids don't have to give me little pictures that they color, but they do it because they love me. I'm going to love them whether they give me a picture or not, but you know what? It blesses my heart when I see a little picture of one of my kids holding daddy's hand with their little stick figures, right? And that's what we want to do for the Lord is, is Father, uh, we want to show you how grateful we are for your love for us, how much we love you. So we see his divine demarcation, that there's, there, there is a difference between his divine nature and his human nature, 
and we see the humanity of Jesus in this passage. The second thing I want you to see here is his disastrous determination. His disastrous determination. Look at verses 19 through 20. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? So Jesus pronounces judgment on this tree. Let's talk about some of the ways that he pronounces judgment on this tree. First, this is a characteristic judgment. This is not a general judgment for every tree. This is for a specific tree. Why is that important? Well, for one, this tree, uh, what we need to know about the tree itself in order to help us understand the picture is this species of fig tree produced fruit either alongside or preceding leaves. So sometimes the fruit would start to grow before the leaves came out, or sometimes they would come up at the same time. This particular species of fig tree that was in this region never produced fruit after the leaves had already fully come out. It was an unusual thing to do that. So the question a lot of commentators ask is, well, why would Jesus curse this tree uh, that uh, one of the other gospel writers says it wasn't the season for figs? So why would he curse a tree for not producing figs when it's not the season for figs? Well, the reason why is, for one, we have to understand this tree, but there's a second thing. There's, there's an interesting clue here of what's going on. You remember before the triumphal entry in chapter 19, they were in Jericho, and it says that they were coming up from Jericho, and you remember I said the, the, the trip from Jericho to Jerusalem, they went up in elevation 1,500 feet. This is a pretty big significance. Here in the mountains, we know that. Like the difference between living on the top of a mountain in Maggie Valley and living down here in Waynesville is a pretty big difference, uh, when, especially in the wintertime. Uh, if you're new to the area, and you li- a lot of people will move here, and they'll buy a house up in Maggie Valley because they're like, this is a beautiful house. It's a really great deal, too. I can't believe the price on it. And then they don't realize, like, you're not going to be able to drive out of your house for two months out of the year because you're way up there. So 1,500 feet elevation makes a big difference. Well, what does that mean? Well, what we know about Jericho is, is Jericho was basically like an oasis. So because of the lower elevation and the heat, it was very tropical there, which means the fruit grew. So there's a good chance that just a few days before, when they were in Jericho on their way up, they actually did eat ripe figs from trees that were the same species of tree, but they ate it in Jericho where the climate was different. And so it's interesting that uh, they had that there, and as they're walking up, they see, oh, well, this is a tree, maybe just like the one that we saw in Jericho, Maybe it has some fruit also because it appears to be like these other trees that did have fruit, and yet it didn't. So it's a characteristic judgment of uh, you look like the other trees, but you're really not. You have, the, you have a cosmetic appearance of being the tree, but you're really not. And so this is an exceptional tree because it's a parallel with an exceptional nation because there's a nation that was like this tree where God chose it out of all the other nations and said, you are my chosen people. You are my chosen nation that I'm setting aside for you. And your laws are going to be different. Your kings are going to be different. Your worship is going to be different. Everything about your culture is different. And even for an ethnically Jewish person today, their culture is still different from the rest of the world. After all these thousands of years, uh, God uh, set Israel apart as a chosen nation. And so the judgment that is reserved for Israel here is a characteristic judgment. Again, notice, the point of this story is not Jesus cursing the Gentiles. The point of the story is Jesus cursing his own people, the people that go by his name but are not truly uh, believing in him. And so it's a characteristic judgment. 
It's also a catastrophic judgment. Uh, one commentator said it this way, uh, in, in this way, God's wrath was not kindled nearly as much by the fact that the people who were strangers to him openly served the devil as it was by the sight of his own possession doing the devil's will. So why does Jesus get angry enough to curse this tree here? Why, why, why does he go into the temple? He wasn't going into the, the temple of Jupiter and driving people out of the temple because they were doing what unbelievers do. They were doing pagan worship. Jesus wasn't interested in cleansing out any other temples. He was interested in his people of saying, you've been called to something different than this. And instead of these, these people, these poor people coming in and being able to offer their sacrifices to the living God and being able to repent of their sins as, as offering these sacrifices and coming to him for forgiveness, instead of them being able to do that, you're charging them so much money that they can't come to God. And you're, you're, you're becoming an obstacle between my people and my father. And that makes Jesus very angry. Uh, we saw this earlier with the disciples when they want to send the children away. Don't get in the way of anyone coming to me. If you are an obstacle, I will curse you. I will move you. I, I want the lowly and the weak and those to come to me. If you get in the way, then we're going to have a problem. And that's what he saw with this tree. It was getting in the way of him satisfying his hunger. And Israel was getting in the way of him satisfying the father's wrath by, by not being obedient. It's also a quick judgment. Notice it says, at once the fig tree withered. And so what this means is quickly by comparison, because you may be saying, if you've read this passage in the other gospels, well, some of the other gospels say that it was overnight, that the next morning they came out and saw that the tree had withered. Does that mean that the Bible is contradicting itself? And again, we have to remember that the reason why we have four gospels with four different writers is they do have different perspectives. And so when he uses the word at once here, he's not saying uh, uh, like the whole tree just like shriveled up and fell on the ground as soon as Jesus said that. There was obviously something that happened to the tree right in front of them. So that process of it dying started right then. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it was obvious enough that the disciples here recognized, wow, he just cursed that tree and something has happened to the tree. It doesn't look the same as it did before. But, but what we see is, is that it says that when he cursed it, it began to wither from the root. So one of the things that they would have found surprising is, uh, in their day, if you had an enemy, say uh, an enemy nation, one of the ways that you would fight that nation is not just by doing combat, but you would do things like espionage. Uh, you would go in and you would destroy their crops, or you would kill their cattle, or you, you would cut off their water supply into their city. Do things like that that basically weakens them so that when the combat comes, you're ready to fight them. We see this uh, illustration when uh, Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares, right? An enemy came at the in the night and sowed in tares in with the wheat, which then creates more work and affects uh, his crops. It, it, it's it's a, an espionage uh, act that happens. Well, one of the things that they would do in their day is they would salt trees. So they, they, you could go into an enemy's territory and say they have this, this uh, beautiful vineyard or they have this nice place of, uh, of fig trees, and you would go in and you would pour salt all around the base of the tree. Now what would happen is, is the next time that it rained, all that salt would get dissolved and the person would have no idea that you had salted their trees until the trees start dying. And then all of a sudden all your crops are dying because it's messed up the minerals in the soil and you have no idea who it was. So it was like a sneaky way of, of, of uh, attacking your enemies. And so they had seen that happen before of somebody salting a tree and saying, well, yeah, we've seen trees wither before. We've seen people curse a tree and, and it wither before, but it usually takes a while to do it. This is like, by the time they got up the next morning, that tree was toast. 
There was no coming back. It says that it also did it from the root. It doesn't mean that you can prune some leaves off. It means when he cursed it, it was doomed. There was no hope for this tree. There's nothing that could be done for it. Now, without getting too eschatological in this passage, one of the ways that you could understand this is the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. That was God cutting off Judaism at the root because all of their worship, all of their atonement, everything was available in the temple. And when the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, it essentially cut off Judaism from the root. Today in modern Judaism, there is no atonement. There's no sacrifices. There's no priesthood. It's all gone. And so there's this appear, appearance of being an Old Testament people, but God, but God cut that off in the same way that he did this with the tree. It's withered from the root. The temple was the root of Judaism. And with the temple gone, there's nothing left. There's nothing that can be done to bring it back at this time. And so it was a catastrophic judgment, and it, and it, and it was a quick judgment because uh, this happened so quickly that there was, there's, there was no way that it could be repaired. And Jesus was demonstrating to the disciples, I'm about to do this to Jerusalem. I'm about to do this to my people. They're about to receive a curse from God that they cannot recover from. That There's no way they can rebuild their religion after I'm done. So as we saw with the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus had no tolerance for cosmetic religion. And the profiteers in the the temple were cut off from God like this tree was cut off from the roots. And one day he will curse every so-called Christian who honors him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. We should be careful that we are not the ones, that our family members are not the ones, that our church is not the one. We should be careful that we are not the ones that are cut off from the grace of God and cursed by him for having the appearance of religion with, with no fruit, with, with no real transformation. We should examine ourselves uh, to see whether we are, are in the faith. What about you today? Are you a cosmetic Christian who looks holy to others and despicable to God? You can't hide from him. You can't be fake with him. He knows. Here's the great thing, though. If that's you today, there's good news for you. Because he offers forgiveness. He offers everlasting life. He offers peace with him. And that's an offer that you don't want to turn down. If, if, if you're just playing church, if, if you're trying to look spiritual or smart in front of people, but you know on the inside nothing's changed, you're not being transformed, you're not having conviction of sin, you're not having victory over sin, you're just basically the same old person you used to be that just looks better on the outside. If you have cosmetic Christianity this morning, the good news is, is blessing and cursing is laid out in front of you. And he offers you the opportunity this morning, as you're hearing this, to repent, to confess that before him, because he already knows you're fake. You're just agreeing with him about what he already knows and be saved and be forgiven and have peace with him and not have to endure this curse that he is about to lay out on people. The third thing that we see here is his doubtless declaration. His doubtless declaration in verses 21 and 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all all the things that you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, we're going to go out in the parking lot today, and it's going to be full of these really nice cars. Somehow our cars got magically changed into nice cars. All of our clothes are going to change and become 
designer clothes and you're going to check your bank account tomorrow and it's, it's going to be full, right? Well, we've heard that verse preached that way a lot, haven't we? Uh, that's the way that fake Christians preach that verse, by the way, um, is, you know, well, you just ask for whatever you want and God will give it to you because it's really all about you. But that's not the way that Jesus is using this here. So there's two things that I want us to see about, about this doubtless declaration that he has about prayer. The first is, is we need to have a fearless faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, for one, again, context matters. When he's talking about taking up a mountain and casting it into the sea, this was a common metaphor that was used in Jewish literature. Uh, when they would talk about powerful rabbis in ancient times, they referred to them as the rooter up of mountains. In other words, they, their wisdom allowed them to uh, untangle complicated problems or to solve things that seemed impossible for men to solve. That their, their wisdom and their knowledge of the scriptures enabled them to uh, end wars or to stop great conflicts or to help people solve problems in their lives. And so people would go to these wise rabbis because they would say, basically, I have a mountain in my life. There's something in my life that I just can't overcome. And the rabbis would use the teaching of the scriptures to help them untangle the situation that they were in. And so this was referred to, to famous rabbis. So he's, he's saying to them, listen, if you think this, this fig tree is good, imagine a, a man going from being a fisherman to being the rooter up of mountains, one who's able to solve tremendous problems, who's able to use the word of God like a weapon against the devil, who's able to build the church that will last forever. Um, going from a fisherman to being that guy is a really big difference. So he's not saying to them, hey, if you point to that mountain and you just speak or declare that that mountain's going to move, then that physical mountain is going to move. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is things like, hey, when you get arrested by the Romans in a few months and they tell you to stop preaching Jesus, you're going to tell them no to their face and say, we're going we we to obey God and not men. You're going to be able to root up those mountains. The Roman Empire was a mountain. The Roman Empire tried to crush the, tur- the church, and Jesus is saying, if you ask for it by prayer, you know what moving a mountain is? When Peter's in prison, and it says that the church is praying for Peter, and he's released from prison miraculously, that's a mountain that's moved. They couldn't go in there and open those gates and take those chains off and do all that. Every single one of them would be, would be killed. And yet through their prayers, that mountain was moved. God released him from prison to the point where he shows up and they're like, hey, somebody's here at the door. I don't know why. It can't be Peter because he's in jail, you know, which just shows how little their prayers were. And yet it's, that still happened. That should give us some confidence. But they had a fearless faith. And what he's saying with the disciples is, is listen, when you're preaching my gospel, when you're about my business and an obstacle comes in your way, you have authority to move that with prayer. Not for my own personal gain, not for things that I want, but for the sake of the gospel. We see our brothers and sisters around the world doing this right now. You know, I imagine all the time, and I've said this many times, you guys know I have, about Wang Yi in China, who was one of the pastors of Early Rain Covenant Church that's doing nine years in prison in China right now for preaching it against the government. And I think about him regularly, and I think how tormented those guards are with his constant preaching of the gospel in prison. Because I, I watched his preaching when he was out of prison. And you want to talk about a rooter up of mountains. Now you think he's in a secret prison in China. What could possibly be done about that? And I'm just imagining, I'm like, how many guards am I going to meet in glory that were converted under his incessant preaching in prison? 
Somebody who's preaching so much, we have to put you in solitary confinement because we are tired of hearing you talk about Jesus. We're tired of hearing you quote the scripture. We're tired of hearing you tell us to repent. I watched a sermon where he said that the president of China was a sinner and that he needed to repent or he was going to be judged by God. If you want to make a communist government angry, that's about the best way that you can do it. He, he is a reader up of mountains. Why? Because he has a fearless faith. Because he, he's standing on the promises of God that Jesus will build his church and that he's just a little piece in the puzzle. And you know what? If he, if he is moved out, it's just like Paul said, it, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he's going to preach Jesus until he's gone. And then when he's gone, he's going to go receive his reward. And he really believes that. And there's many brothers and sisters that really believe that. Why? Because they don't have a cosmetic Christianity. Because they know that the promises of God are true. And that they can stand on those promises. William Hendrickson said it this way. He said, Nothing is too big for true faith to obtain, but that faith must have a promise to lean upon, and it must be showed by prayer. So when, when we're dealing with an obstacle as a church, okay, we want to see Waynesville converted to Christ. That's where we want to start, right? We want to see the whole world come to Christ. But let's just start in Waynesville. This is where God has put us at. Let's start on Russ Avenue. When everybody on Russ Avenue is saved, then we can kind of start work, working our way out. If we start there, what, what Hendrickson is saying here is we have to have a promise to lean upon. You know what that promise is? There, there are many promises from Jesus. For instance, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So how, how do people become saved? Well, one is we exalt Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we're here. Like, my hope is, is at the end of the day, you should think Jesus is more awesome than you did when I started talking. If that happened, then, then I have succeeded. If, if Christ is greater in your eyes uh, than when we started here. And we want to proclaim that to the community. When, when you look at all, all the, the, the fear and confusion and, and, and anxiety that's out in the community today, do you know what helps? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's the way that the song says it. So we should be a beacon of light in this community to say, uh, are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling concerned? Are you worried about your life? Are you afraid of death? Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. This is, this is what we should, should be saying as a witness to the world. And we're leaning upon promises. You know what another promise is? The parable of the four soils, right? I hate how much that gets twisted. I've heard so many guys preach, you know, we just need to till up the soil, you know, this person's rocky soil, and we just need to till up the rocks out of it so that they can receive the gospel. That's not what that parable is about. The parable is about, we have no idea. If you go out and witness to 10 people this afternoon, you have no idea where that person's relationship with God is. You don't know whether they're already saved or not. You don't know whether they're a cosmetic Christian and they tell you that they're saved and that they're a member of the church and they're really not. You don't know whether they're ready to receive the gospel or not. And guess what? You can't tell by the way they look, by the way they act. There's, there's no way that we can know. We just have to preach the gospel to everybody. But the promise is, in that parable, some of the seed fell on good soil. Which means, guess what? If you sow enough seed, some of it's going to land on good soil. So don't be discouraged when you're sharing the gospel with people, coworkers, friends, neighbors, people in the community. Don't be discouraged when they don't respond the way you want. Your job is not to figure out what the soil of their heart is. That's between them and the Lord. But guess what? If you keep on and you do it enough, you're going to find somebody that's ready to receive that word. And, and, that, and that's a promise that we have as a church. It, it, you know, I, I, did, I did the math a few years ago, right? So if we only went and visited families that had small children within like a five-mile radius of our church, if we shared the gospel with all of them and had a 90% failure rate, 
okay? So only one out of 10 of them actually believed in Christ. Uh, we would not be able to fit them in this building within a five mile radius of this church. If nine out of 10 people that you shared the gospel with rejected Christ, we would not have enough room here. We would have to send them to another church. And so think about that in your mind of uh, how, many, how many things uh, do you have that much of a, of a promise of success in uh, that, that you can do that? And you know what? The other nine, maybe they're just not ready yet. Maybe God's going to save them too, and it's just not the right time. And so we don't give up on them either. But how many times do we not share the gospel because we just think, well, that person doesn't want to receive it, or that kind of person's not really interested in hearing this message, or what if this person rejects me? They're not rejecting you. You can't save them. They're rejecting Christ. And that's, again, that's between them and the Lord. So we have to have a fearless faith. We have promises that we can stand on from God. The other thing is a flourishing faith. And this is something that really encouraged me looking at this and looking at the way that Jesus talked with his disciples about faith. In Jesus' mind, faith that pleases God is about quality over quantity. Paul says that uh, each of us is given a different measure of faith. So guess what? You may be the most faithful that you can be to God. I mean, fully obedient to him, set apart and holy to him, working for him, and you will never be like one of the apostles. You'll never be like a friend that you have or a coworker that you have. You'll see, you'll see God do things in their life or through their ministry, or you'll see them using their spiritual gifts. And if you compare yourself to them, you're going to think, I'm just not spiritual enough. If I just love God more, if I just had more victory over my sin, then I, then I could do more for him. But guess what? You're not that person. You're not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not the Apostle Peter. And so God has given you a measure of faith for the calling that he has given to you. And Jesus' point here with the disciples is, is not do better, have a bigger faith. It's saying, make the faith that God has given you strong. Some of us in here, you might think, I have a hard time reading scripture regularly. I just really struggle with that discipline. But man, when it comes to prayer, I'm, just, I'm talking to the Lord all day. Okay, should you be reading Scripture more? Sure. Should you feel guilt that God's not going to use you or that you can't have right fellowship with Him because one of your disciplines is not as strong as somebody that you've seen over there or what we've held up in the church as some kind of ideal that people can't reach? No. You have to answer to God for yourself with a clean conscience and say, am I being obedient to you based on what you've given me, based on what you've made, made me? Right? It's the same thing like with giving. Right? When, when we look at giving, the the New Testament doesn't lay out a standard of like, this is how many dollars you have to give to the work of the ministry. It doesn't lay that out. Why? Because it's different for everybody. Everybody ha ha has to have a clear conscience before God about how they're using their money, not just with church, by the way, with everything. They have to have a clear conscience with God in doing that. But the great thing is, is that God is not expecting you to give to the church like a millionaire, unless you're a millionaire. If you are a millionaire, then he probably does expect you to do that. But it doesn't, it, it, the widows might teach us, it's, again, it's not about the, the quantity. It's not about how much. Same thing with your spiritual gifts. You might say, well, hey, I can't serve over here and do this like this person does. I'm not in a situation. That's fine. What can you do? What, has God, what is the ministry that God has given you? Because guess what? You know what? There's other people in the church that aren't going to be able to do what you're able to do. That's why it's a body consisting of many parts. So it's a flourishing faith. So what does God want to see from you in your faith? He doesn't want to see you be like one of the apostles. You know why? Because he already had apostles. If he wanted more apostles, he would make some, and he hasn't done that. 
He wants you to be you and to be the most faithful you that you can be, not somebody else. And so what he wants to see is a flourishing faith. Sanctification is a progress. Your goal is to not try to be, I, I struggle with this. I see pastors that I respect, and I'm like, man, I wish I could preach like that guy, or I wish I had the wisdom that that guy has. And then those guys who have the wisdom remind me, I've been preaching for like 40 years. You're not going to get there in 10 or 20 years. And there's guys ahead of me, <laughs> or some of them that may even be dead now, that I wish I was like then. You can't, you can't judge yourself based on somebody else. You have to ask yourself, I asked somebody recently, just this week I asked another pastor, I said, uh, how do you feel like you have grown in sanctification over the last year? Do you feel like you're holier now than you were a year ago? I'm not going to tell you what he said because it wasn't very encouraging, but, but that's a question we should be asking ourselves, right? Not, am I like this person, but am I closer to Christ than I was a year ago or six months ago or five years ago or ten years ago? And if the answer is yes, that's a good sign. That means keep moving forward. And ultimately, sanctification is us working together with the Holy Spirit. And so if your desire is to be obedient as you obey, he works in you. This is part of the reason why we take the Lord's Supper every week, right? There's nothing magical under the cloth there. But what is it? It's, part of it is obedience of saying, uh, when you come to the table, you're saying, Lord, I want to be holier. I want to be sanctified. I want your help in my life. I want power from the Holy Spirit to do what you've called me to do. And why do we do that every week? Because we need that every week. Because we need to be encouraged with our brothers and sisters working together and from the Holy Spirit that we have communion with him and that he invites us to his table. And I don't know about you guys, but every time I get invited to his table, I want to come because I want more of him. I want more, more of his power in my life. I want to be more like him. Gospel ineffectiveness is not God's problem. Sometimes we can look at uh, what, is, what is the impact that our church is making in the community, right? If you go and ask people, do they even know who we are, or what do they think about us, or how does it affect the gospel? Gospel ineffectiveness is not God's problem. Guess what? The same gospel that saved the apostles is the same gospel that saved us. That's the same gospel that's going to save anybody. So if, if the church is powerless, if our witness is powerless, that's not God's fault. His gospel has always been the, just as powerful to save. It's the only way to be saved. So a powerful church is not built on man-made programs and models and methods. Those are just tools that we use to equip the saints for ministry. So we're not anti all of those things, but our hope is not in those things. The, that, that cannot transform a person's heart. In the end, a church's witness is only as powerful as its weakest member. Think about it. The, the witness that our spiritually weakest member has in the community is a measure of how, how strong we are as a church. Because when somebody asks that person, when they see their life, or they see the Lord working or not working in their life, and they ask, where do you go to church? And they say, Barberville Baptist Church. That is the witness of our church. That's one of the reasons why we practice regenerate church membership. You have to be saved in order to be a member of our church, which for some of you may sound really common, but there's a lot of churches that don't require that. Because we want the witness to be, we are Christians here. We are surrendered to Jesus here. We preach a saving gospel here. We serve a living God here. Those are the kind of things that we want people to know about us. In a few weeks when we go to the Apple Festival, what do we want people to know about us? That we have a cool logo and, you know, we're really friendly? Well, those things are great, but that's not going to save anybody. 
we want people to know we're serving a risen Savior. We're, 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 we're ambassadors of peace to the world. Of, would you like peace with God this morning? I can tell you how to do that. And it's not because I took a class. It's because I'm saved. <laughs> we have to build one another up in maturity for the glory of God. This is what Ephesians 4 calls us to. If you go read that, what's the goal? The goal is unity, knowledge, and maturity. That's what the goal is in Ephesians 4. So one of the reasons why we do things like growth groups and Sunday school and things like that, there's nothing magical about those things, but we want to get our weakest member into that fellowship so that they can be discipled and ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Because again, when that person is powerful in the kingdom of God, the whole church will be immensely powerful in the kingdom of God. What, what if, what if the, spirit, the most spiritually immature person in our church was winning someone to Christ every single week? 52 people a year. What if that was the least person in our church? Imagine how powerful that would be. Imagine how much that would change our community. If that was like, Father, I'm sorry, I only, I only led 50 people to Christ this year. I'm going to try to do better next year. Imagine what that would be like. So in conclusion, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord rejects David's brother. And this is what he tells Samuel. He says, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Christian, you need to leave today knowing that you're accepted by God because he has taken out your heart of sin and given you a heart of flesh. You need to rejoice in Christ today that his love for you is not conditioned on your obedience. That's very good news for us. You need to be encouraged by that. If you heard this this morning and you realize that you're a cosmetic Christian, that you have the appearance of religion and there's no real fruit, there's no gospel transformation in your life, you don't have a love for God, his word, or his people, then you need to exchange that for true repentance and faith this morning. You, you, need, you need to confess your sin to God and say, I'm done playing games with you. I acknowledge that you're real. You're the Lord of my life. I'll do whatever you want. I'll give up whatever you want. I'm fully surrendered to you this morning. And turn away from that and, and renounce that. There's going to be many that are going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. And I don't want that to be anybody in this room this morning. I don't want it to be anybody in our church. It would, it, imagine how heartbreaking it would be to stand before the Lord knowing that some of us are not there, knowing that you aren't there. It, it, it would be a terrible thing. And so all of us can leave encouraged this morning, whether that's knowing that we are in Christ or whether knowing that today is the day that we're going to come to him in true repentance and faith and not have a cosmetic Christianity. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we know that you see our most inward parts, as your word says, Lord, that we cannot hide from you, that no appearances that we put on or big words that we use or fancy theological knowledge or whatever it is, Lord, you see through all of that, and you know the truth of each one of our hearts. You made us. And Lord, you know whether your spirit has done a work in our hearts or not. And so, Lord, we are exposing ourselves to you this morning. We're being honest with you and saying we want you to examine us. We don't want to live a fake Christianity. We don't, we don't want to show up on that day 
and not be written in the Lamb's Book of Life and be on a church roll because that won't do us any good. Lord, we pray for our loved ones that are in that situation. Some of us, even today, may go and see family members that profess you with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. Lord, help us to love them enough to call them to repentance, to not uh, treasure this earthly relationship that we have with our family members and our friends more than the eternal relationship that we could have. Help us to know ourselves rightly and to know you rightly, to see you in the beauty of your holiness, and to recognize our need for you this morning. And Lord, as we come to this time of self-examination, we ask that 